Thank you so much, Megan, for that introduction. Good afternoon, everyone. <laughs> so I'm going to walk in front of the screen just for a moment to put this iPad down over here. But then we're going to engage in, one, the watching of a video <laughs> uh, so that we can get the AME research findings into the room to begin with. Because we won't be doing a lot of delving into the AME research findings in this performance lecture. We will delve into an experience around becoming spirit-led people to influence the work that we're going to do when we leave from this place, but also to investigate what it is that the spirit invites us to do as we are leading the next generation of faithful leaders into their next most faithful journey. And so, uh, Megan, if we can go ahead and play the uh, video from the AME Church findings, uh, that would be helpful. And it looks like you can't get the click there. Of course, because technology does what it wants to do. We've practiced this 400 times. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, we've also practiced figuring out how to get to the link. It should just be in the... Yeah, there you go. Just just go out and come back in. And just if you go on that end and just hit, you do it. You got it. So let's full screen it. Thank you. Confirmation and the preparation for confirmation are often seen as a core characteristic of Protestant churches. Months, sometimes years of study, engagement with the tradition of the church, as well as expressions of congregational identity are hallmarks of what is typically considered when thinking about confirmation. But what if discipleship developments held a deeper meaning? What if faith formation and passing on the stories of the faith in meaningful ways wasn't just about rites of passages and practices of sacramental work, but something different? In our research, we looked at three distinctly different churches in the African Methodist Episcopal denomination, each in different regions of the country, employing a variety of methods of youth engagement where young people expressed an intricate connection between identity, purpose, intimacy, healing, belonging, that these all come into play and illuminate what my colleague, Dr. Reginald Blunt, calls a theological anthropology of masterpiece. Where we create spaces where young people not only attend services, go to church and learn of the faith of their ancestors, but where they truly know they belong. The vision of the church is one to be a community church, okay? And so we are about um, trying to reach and touch the lives of every um, segment of our community, mm -hmm. regardless of the race, creed, or color. And we want to touch every age group. We want to touch our young people, um, the children, the youth, our adolescents, and also our adult and senior population. So we have multi-ministries in our congregation that reach and touch the lives of these individuals. Because I don't even live close to the church. You travel a distance mm -hmm. to come. I travel about 20 minutes to get here. And it's worth it? Yes, yeah, it's, it's always worth it. And then I always bring, no matter how far my friends are, if they live even farther, I go pick them up early in the morning mm -hmm. just to make sure we're all ready and then we all come together. Mm -hmm. And then just, we all just worship and all together as a family. They bring everything around us. You know, every, every service, they make sure they acknowledge us young people. I think the perspective of the youth is to bring in more youth and understand the Word of God. But I think that we're working on trying to build up the youth so that we have a bigger and greater church 
people think that oh church is boring and church isn't fun but you just have to make it funny it's fun to learn about what people did back then how people had to confirm their faith how people had to found the church so i just want to like inspire more people to come i like them they teach me stuff that i don't know about god okay does anyone make you come or do you want to come when you get up in the morning i want to come yeah why because it lets me know that i'm a part of god's spirit I learned about the Trinity, which is God the Father, Jesus Christ the Son, and the Holy Ghost. I learned about confirming my faith of the church, being baptized, what baptizing means. I learned about how to get to know God better for myself and how to connect with Him by prayer. It's a lot that I learned, but it all taught me how to, you know, kind of connect to the church. Confirmation is like basically where it teaches you about Jesus and God and make sure it makes you understand more and I needed that. Mm -hmm. I mean in church it was you know a little struggle for me to understand. Mm -hmm. This helped me. I'm, I'm trying to find God. I'm trying to find my reason for being here. With my process of teaching I like to keep the kids in, in, engaged. I like them to that's why I ask a lot of questions to get them it's just not about reading to them, but mm -hmm. to make sure that they're engaged and asking questions. And um, also, I have some kids that are far advanced, like Michaela is more advanced than the other kids. So making sure that it's not a competition that if your brother or sister cannot find the scripture, what page are you on? Because they're using they're all using the same Bibles, mm -hmm. which are presented to them at the end of the confirmation process. The kids don't put their names on their Bibles or their workbooks or their folders. We do numbers because we want to keep everything confidential. Mm -hmm. They take an assessment in the beginning of the confirmation, and we give them the same assessment at the end. And they're looking at by numbers so that we don't know who they are, so there's no judgmental, and they feel comfortable that they're not being put on blast. So that's very important that the information is confidential and that we're not sharing with anyone other than myself or pastor is seeing those those questions at the beginning and what they at the end so that we can evaluate the process of what they knew from the beginning and they should know more towards the end of the project. So thanks so much, Megan. So <clears throat> you'll see that we highlighted what was going on at the first AME church in Las Vegas. There's a very rigorous confirmation pro program there. And actually the pastor, the Reverend Dr. Ralph Williamson has written the curriculum for the AME church, which uh, uh, Katie referenced a little bit earlier. But in addition, to what we just witnessed there, as Reggie and I talked, his theological anthropology of masterpiece hits at those five core values, but I want us to take a look at this last one of belonging, that what many of our confirmation projects lift up or many of our confirmation works lift up is belonging to the local church, belonging to a faith body, helping young people to identify what it means to belong to our various denomination. But what if, we shifted from belonging to becoming. And it's not about the space that we situate ourselves in on a Sunday after Sunday, but who are we helping young people to be shaped to become overall? So the balance of our time will be spent from belonging to becoming. And so I offer two resources. Again, shameless plug, I've written this great book that I think it's great on identity and faith formation from my own perspective of what it's meant for me to become. And then also Mike Clarence offers the same title from belonging to becoming. And so to get into that, Megan said that I'm an 
jazz artists. And so today, we'll jazz together because you're going to sing, and I'm going to sing, and I'm going to sing, and you're going to sing. And together, we will see that there's so much more to who we can become as confirmants and as leaders of confirmation projects and programs. And so you're going to sing, oh, I have this. That's why you stepped away. Right. You're going to sing, not what I used to be. Try. Oh, y'all are good. Not quite what I will be. Becoming, I'll keep becoming. So, yes, at the end of my song that I did write to go along with the book, we're going to sing that hook together. But leading into that, allow me, I'll indulge me. You don't have a choice because you're kind of captive unless you run out to the bathroom uh, to sing with you this song that I believe can be an okay, anchor for the work that we are called to do. Becoming. Oh, yeah. Trials and errors make us strong. If we learn how to just move on and not give in. When we fall, falling down and getting up when we will not be stuck in the places where we fall we must see that there's so much to be keep on living through the trials we will see becoming who we'll be it's not that hard if we can see we've got to keep growing and not get stuck Just hold on and not give up. We'll keep becoming. Oh, yeah. When we fall down, we must get up. We cannot get stuck in the rut, but then we'll see. It's really not that bad. Many times we find ourselves caught up in all kinds of mess, and that's the plan. But we'll give up. Oh, but we must see that there's so much to be. Keep on living through the trials we will see. Becoming who we'll be, it's not that hard if we can see. We've got to keep growing.
So becoming spirit-led people, I think the Holy Spirit tried to creep up in this room right now. And so in the tradition of my culture, I may try to have to run around, but I promise I'll kick my shoes off if I get to running so I don't kick you with my three inches. Becoming spirit-led people. And so this takes a turn, a twist, a dance, if you will, on the chapter in the great book that you're going to get your hands on at the end of the day from Cultivating Teen Faith that is written by Gordon Makowski, who is in the room. Shout out to Gordon and Reverend Dr. Reginald Blunt. Okay, they're both Reverend Dr. Don't do all of the titles. Reggie and Gordon wrote this chapter. And so if you really want to just skip ahead to this chapter in the book, when you, no, I'm just kidding, just kidding. Read it in the order that it's written there. But we're going to delve into the spirit-led people, uh, the conversation of looking at tradition, innovation for confirmation in congregations and denominations. I'm also going to dance around and play with some of my own research around pneumatology, because that's my area of interest as it pertains to being a philosophical theologian. So let's go on this journey together. This is the question that we are inviting each of us to answer by the end of the day. Yeah, by the end of the day, all of this work will be to answer what is the role of confirmation and its equivalent practices in influencing and shaping congregational experiences of becoming spirit-led people. The work that we do in our confirmation uh, programs pretty much is about teaching facts, right? Teaching facts. About what? Because as spirit-led leaders and teachers, we're called not to create something new, but to transmit what Jesus has already taught, to serve as agents of transformation in sharing what Jesus taught, and then to encourage those we teach to follow Jesus's model of transgression. Now, these are three important pieces that Gordon and Reggie flesh out in the text. And so I won't spend a lot of time here because I want you to read the whole book, digest the whole book because it's amazing. But first to transmit, teaching to transmit for spirit-led leaders of confirmation is to share the life and teachings of Jesus. What does it mean to know God's story and to share God's story and how our young people fit into that great, big, wonderful story. And then teaching to transform. Transforming is about helping young people to claim their voice and their vocation, their identities as followers of Jesus, and their purpose to be members of God's people who are called to join God's mission to the world. But then thirdly and finally, Teaching to transgress. Of course, you probably are familiar with the perennial text on uh, teaching to transgress. That spirit-led confirmation leaders must not only teach to transmit and transform, but also teach to transgress, acting on their transformation by the spirit so they may be formed toward the likeness of Christ. 
And so the question that Kenda and conversation with Gordon and Reggie lift up in this particular chapter is, what kind of Jesus are we presenting to our confirmants? Who is the Jesus that we are lifting up? And so uh, there are three images there. You may or may not have any of these images in your own churches, but uh, one of my uh, favorite Writers ask the question, is God a white racist? <laughs> and so the answer at the end of the day, hopefully, is no. But some of the ways that we teach and some of what we lift up as normative in our congregations lifts up a God who really is pretty favorable to white folks and whiteness in general. Okay, breathe in. <laughs> breathe out. <laughs> Not trying to disrupt too much. But I need to name the elephant in the room, right? Because there's five people of phenotypically color in the room. Now, I don't know what your ancestral history may be, but I'm looking at about five or six folks, maybe 10, but definitely not a, a huge majority of people in the room. Perhaps your congregations look different than the room right now, but what does it mean to lift up an image and likeness of Christ that is not surrendered to and in service to whiteness? Biblically and theologically, it has to be recognized that the Holy Spirit is the primary teacher with respect to helping confirmants learn what it means to know and follow Jesus Christ as committed disciples and engaged members of Christ's body, the church, that does not always look like what we say it looks like. And so here is where I make a slight departure from what Gordon and Reggie have done in the text, because I want to suggest that in addition to tradition innovation, I'm looking at the time, I don't want to completely run out of my time. Yes, we need to be mindful of holding on to the traditions that we teach, a deep fidelity to the tradition, but also have a radical openness to innovation, being mindful of the ways that technology is essential if we're going to do relevant and relatable work with our confirmants who are of the post-millennial Generation Z and et cetera, whatever else social construct we come up to label this group of folks that we're trying to learn about, right? And so um, in addition to holding on to tradition innovation, Gordon and Reggie lift up these rules or tools or suggestions for how leadership for tradition innovation ought to take root in the life of the people who are teaching our confirmants. It's important to have a prayer life. I'm a pastor, right? How many of us emphasize that the people who are doing the work with our confirmants have a healthy prayer life? Praise God. Yes. Participate, Chris. Yes. Raise your hand. I love it. Chris was like, this is not rhetorical. I'm going to answer it. <laughs> yes, indeed. That first and foremost, uh, the folks leading confirmation projects must have a healthy spiritual life by praying to be open, to be used by the Holy Spirit, must also know the gospel message. Now, in the European study, as well as in our study, we talk about the biblical literacy with which all of the participants, as well as the congregations, actually hold on to. But I don't know that we're fully biblically literate. We know how to retell the stories as we have heard them and as they've been passed down to us. But how many of us are really knowing the message of the gospel and the basis of Christian belief with respect for the experiences of the learners? Because I love this piece that they pull out. The work of the Holy Spirit is in any individual's life may not conform strictly to the program's timeline, amen, or content. 
And so how do we make sure that our leaders are willing to acquire basic skills of imaginative leadership, think outside of boxes, think beyond binaries and paradigms, to understand and respect the process enough to do no harm? Part of the reason I surmise that many of our children graduate from confirmation and from our churches is because they have been so shaped by things that have been harmful, that the things we have taught of our faith have done harm to them existentially in terms of who they hear spirit calling them to be in the now doesn't always jive well with what we teach. So what do we do? We remind ourselves this is the question that we're supposed to be asking. <laughs> what is the role of confirmation? I want to take seriously that it's everything. That when we do this well and right, we really do have churches that are vibrant and flourishing. So what does it mean to do this right? It means we have to change. The way we do confirmation has to change. The stories don't change because Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. But our emphasis has to change. And I want to suggest that that change must begin to be pneumatologically speaking. A wonderful change has come over me. Tremaine Hawkins, in the tradition of my experience, lifts up this song. And whenever she gets to singing, I mean, the Holy Spirit gets to moving. And folks get to rocking and swaying and feeling the hallelujahs and the high praises of God going forth. Because something happens when the pneuma, the ruach, the spirit that lives in and through in the person of who God is and in the creation that God has created begins to move. But if we are mindful and we remember, Yurgan Moltmann as well as Jones and Lakeland suggest to us that it was pneumatology that split the church into the East and the West over a millennium ago. In 381, when the Roman Catholic Church insisted upon adding the controversial filioque clause to the Nicene Creed. We remember it from church history. If we do, we do well. But most of the time, we just skip past that because we want to be our denomination and we don't, okay. It is St. Augustine's on the Trinity that would establish the full logic of this Western pneumatology upon which we ground much of what we do. Uh, Augustine's model for understanding the spirit is the bond of love within the inner life of God and God's own self. What Augustine calls the vinculum caryatus, essentially the inner life of God, the love that unites and the father and the son into mutual fellowship. The mutuality between God father and God son comes out in fullness through this person of Holy Spirit. For those of us who may not be Trinitarian in our orientation, uh, just walk with me a little while and I promise you that we're going to get somewhere that hopefully will help us to land together. This one one-dimensional expression of the Spirit's existence, which my mentor and my advisor, Stephen G. Ray, says leads to an anemia that would characterize the Western church for years following the writings of Augustine. That it is because we have theology and works and practices that are devoid of the life-giving work of the Holy Spirit that we are a dying church. 
So how do we get there? Well, Jürgen Moltmann, one of my primary theologians with which I work, uh, talks about imminent transcendence in that we see God and God's spirit in all things. Now, this is not pantheism, but this is lifting up a God who really does permeate the life of the creation that God created. And so the operations of God's life-giving, life-affirming spirit are universal and they're everywhere. Mulan was right, you know. <laughs> who am I becoming? We see it in our traditional Asiatic and African religious expressions, which primarily are still based in their Eastern understandings that we hold on to those roots. But here in the West, we not only colonize our people, but we colonize our church. And so I want to suggest that like in BT, we returned to this Ubuntu that recognizes that to be religious is to be in a religious universe, that we are religious beings in a religious universe that is never devoid and divorced from God, but must always be aware and we are better equipped when we are attuned to the vibrancy and the frequency of the spirit. For all that is of the world is of God. Every aspect of life presents an opportunity for the manifestation of the divine presence. This is at the heart of womanist methodology upon which I try to build in my work. But Kelly Brown Douglas speaks this particularly. And so if we connect imminent transcendence and we connect in Ubuntu, we get to a space and a place where we are pneumatologically speaking, speaking in the spirit and we change confirmation. Gordon and Reggie lift up in the text something that is surprisingly the case in a chapter that is written about spe being spirit-led people. It is very Christocentric. I love you so much, Gordon. Please don't like fight me. But I want us to center the pneuma because if we're going to be spirit-led people, it cannot be Christocentric. It cannot be situated in the life and the body and the work of Jesus alone because Jesus' life and work and ministry is not centered in Jesus alone. All that Jesus does is through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can debate me on it. We can talk about it at dinner if you so desire. But Jesus is not even raised from the dead of his own self. But the power of the Holy Spirit raises Christ from the dead. And then Jesus reminds the folks that I'm not going to be here with you, but I will leave you. Lavocat, the one who will be with you, who will advocate for you in this life and in the life to come. And so, Yerga Motman offers us this reality that spiritu sanctificans is what we focus on in our church. The spirit that sanctifies through the person of Jesus, the living Christ. That's what we confirm people around. Get saved. Be holy. But the spiritus vivificans, the spirit that gives life, is of the same substance, homoousio, same essence, of this Christos that we have lifted up in our confirmation work. So what then do we do? This is what Sean and Nicole Gladden suggests, that spirit-led people live lives that resist social, economic, institution, and political death, because that's the nature of the spirit. When the soul and creative voice of the individual becomes enveloped in and mutated by institutional bureaucracy, co-opted by commodified identity formation, the pneumatic voice is muffled. <clears throat> Let me clear my throat. 
More than this, if we take seriously the eschatological and pneumatological impact of our individual actions in the here and now, not just in how we live and move and have our being, but how we confirm, <laughs> what results when we ignore that pneumatological speech is the denigration of abundant spirit-filled living and our confirmation and equivalent practices are no longer relevant and our children graduate and become nuns, duns, and relig religiously unaffiliated, spiritual, but not religious, because we long for the spirit. We were created, creatio imago dei, to have spirit flowing in, with, and through, and all around us. But we got so focused on Jesus. I love Jesus. Don't take my black card. Jesus is still my savior. But the spirit is where I believe confirmation needs to change. So again, what's the role of confirmation? It's equivalent practices and in influencing and shaping congregational experiences of becoming spirit-led people is to change. It is everything. And so I invite you into a space briefly before we prepare for some questions and some conversation to hear how spirit is speaking. I have talked a whole lot. So I'm going to take a brief moment to sing a song while you all take a brief moment to gather your thoughts, to perhaps have a few questions that we'll engage in together. The Lord be with you. My ending way, Kandoyako. 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 Your will be done on earth, O Lord. 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 Your will be done in here, O Lord. May spirit who animates, energizes, revives, and restores, be present in this space, and through the balance of our time together, that we will ask the questions we've been afraid to ask. We'll delve into places that seem to be uncomfortable because it's there and then that you do your best work. And so we yield our time and our plans to you, Holy Spirit, to have your own way, that your will would be done. To you, God, whom Jesus calls Father, in the power of the Holy Spirit, and in the matchless name of Jesus, our living and loving brother, together we all say, amen. amen.